0: As they're sliding out, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and go ahead and turn with me to page 860. 860. Appreciate all of the the cares and concerns with my wrist up here. Um, I wish that I had a cool story to share. Um, Like, you know, somebody tried to attack my wife and I was brave and... And an uppercut, um, but I don't have any cool stories. Um, but uh, yeah, just a small little, little minor surgery. Thank you for many of that have asked there and, and been gracious as, as I've stuck my hand out. And that's been awkward. Um, so um, we are going to continue this morning in our study in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 6 verse 16. Now I realize it's about 55 verses. I could probably preach about seven sermons and I'm going to throw it all into one. So you can see the challenge before us today. But before we jump in there, I'm sure many of you know who Sandy is by now, right? Have you heard of Sandy? If you haven't heard of Sandy, that means you have been out of tune with either the news or, you know, maybe you've been studying somewhere in a cave. Um, but, you know, supposedly there is this news that Sandy, which is a hurricane for those of you that's, that's not a new attender today, that's a hurricane um, that is supposed to hit below New York City sometime in the next day or two. Now what is odd about Sandy is that hurricanes don't usually make it this far north with that amount of power. Um, now, as I talk about this, some of you are even getting some insight into a little bit about me. What you did not know is that I'm really a meteorologist at heart. Um, you can ask Tanner here. He's even got a nickname for me. If if I was not doing this, I would probably be doing meteorology somewhere. Just for some reason, um, I enjoy it. It's, it's exciting to me to look at how weather models can try to predict what happens and then fail over and over again. Um, in light of our sovereign God. Um, but it's just a hobby of mine. I love I love the weather. I love reflecting on it. The news of Sandy. Watch out, right? You've got a, a state of emergency, I think, already declared for Massachusetts. You heard Mayor Bloomberg from New York City yesterday. I mean, we just had a hurricane What Irene, this August, a year ago, we had to cancel services here. The subway system in Boston is shut down. I want you to just reflect with me for a second. In light of this news, it's basically dumped in your lap. You've got some choices to make, right? You make choices based on news. Now, now you've got some choices. You, you, can, you can say, man, I don't, I don't believe the news. They're lying. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, you, you can reject it or you can heed and you can, you can clear out the leaves from the water drain in front of your street. You can board up your house if you're on the coast. You can flee and evacuate as the news is saying, Sandy's coming, leave. That's your choice. It's news. The news is put out there and you are giving an opportunity to respond. When we come to the gospel, the gospel is news. It is news for every single person in here, and, and it's put in your lap, and you are given and challenged with an opportunity to respond. So as we start out today, I, I just want to just start with this question. How have you responded to the news of the gospel? What has been your response to the news? The gospel. We will come back to that question, but I want you to already be asking and I want you to look at yourself. I don't want you to look at the person beside you saying, How have they responded? I'm asking you, How have you responded to the news of the gospel? Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you. God, as we just sang a few minutes ago, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you every hour. We need you. And even more so right now, as we read your word, Lord, we need you to open our eyes, our hearts, to think rightly about this news so that we respond rightly and that the results are not tragic, but life-giving. God, we need you. I pray. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 5. Here's where we're going today. Last week Tanner gave us an overview of the ministry of Jesus based on Isaiah 61. It is a ministry of the word. He says I've come to proclaim good news and it is a ministry of deeds, of healings, of miracles. So you've got word and you've got deed. When, what we come to in chapter 5 today is I'm going to add one other component to it. So it's a ministry of the word, it's a ministry of the deed, and then thirdly, it's a ministry of gathering disciples. So the key focus today is going to be on the call of disciples. You see in Luke chapter 5, you even see the heading there above verse 1, Jesus calls the first Disciples, And we're going to go all the way through Luke chapter 6, which ends in, um, in Luke chapter 6. We're going to go through verses 6, chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, which is the call of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. So we've got discipleship that is sandwiching our two texts today. And so the, the title of where we're headed today is Undeserving Disciples Making Disciples. And, and the point is pretty simple. And this is, this is what I want you to get here. Disciples are sinners who follow Jesus and bring others to Jesus to find forgiveness. You get that? Disciples are sinners who follow Jesus and bring others to Jesus to find forgiveness. And so we're going to start here with the first truth today. And the truth is this. Disciples are undeserving sinners and need forgiveness. Of grace, Disciples are undeserving sinners in need of grace. And we're going to see basically all through chapter 5 here is we're going to see example after example of people, undeserving sinners, who find grace when they come to Christ. So Luke chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is what Luke says. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, we're going to find out later, this is Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, And let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to seek. But when Simon Peter saw it, and when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Here's our first picture of an undeserving sinner finding grace. Now, I just want to point out a few things from the text here. It's interesting here that Simon and them, they had been fishing all night. And what did they caught? Nothing. And so Jesus, a carpenter comes to these expert fishermen and says, hey, I want you to send the boats back. Send the nets. I want you to drop the nets back down. And Peter replies, there's an implied rebuke here. Jesus, our carpenter, you're going to tell me how to go fish? Now we see what happens though, right? They go back out and they drop the nets down and they bring in so so much fish he's got to call his partner. It was probably who we called up was John. And James and John, they bring their boat out, and both of them begin to sink. We see the the magnitude of their catch here. Now, let's just reflect on this. What is this saying about Jesus? And then what is this saying about us? So obviously we see here, man, how did Jesus know that all these fish would be there? And then secondly, how did he get them into the nets? So as we, as we reflect on the text and we look at Jesus, we see this is either highlighting that Jesus knew his knowledge of where the fish would be or his power to draw and bring them in or some combination of both of them. And this is what Peter sees. I mean, they're astonished. Who is this? Man, we've been working all night and, and at his word we dropped down the nets and, and this is probably the greatest catch that we have ever had. Who is This Jesus. An awareness of God's presence results in a sense of unworthiness. Now before we move on, we'll just pause for a second because I know what you're thinking. You've all heard fishing stories, right? You may even have, I see some smiling faces out there. You know, how does it work? You go spend a day on the lake and then you come back and you're like, man, let me tell you about how big this fish was. And every time you tell the story, what happens? I mean, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and, and there were more fish. When we come to this fishing story, man, it is not that. The, the magnitude of this fish is believable. The magnitude of this catch is believable because of the one who was orchestrating it all. And so this tells us a lot about who Jesus is, but I want you to look at Peter's response here in verse nine, in verse eight, sorry. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter is not confessing individual sins here. What he is doing is in front of who he perceives, the awareness of God, he is confessing He is recognizing the sinfulness of his entire character, and he even thinks that because of his sin, he can have nothing to do with Jesus, which is astonishing what's about to happen next. I mean, you would think you've got the sinner. I mean, look, Peter, he's an ordinary fisherman. I know what you're sitting here thinking here. And as you reflect on discipleship today, I want you to just be reflecting on man, what kind of people are these people? This is a fisherman. An ordinary fisherman. This is not a PhD from Harvard or MIT. This isn't some well-known businessman. This is just a fisherman. He's an ordinary guy. We could go to Acts four, Peter and John, and they, man, we are ignorant, untrained, ordinary men. There's nothing special about this. And you know what? For the most of us, that's who we are. We're just ordinary people. But the fact that Jesus, that Peter thought his sinfulness would keep him. From the mission of a Savior, what does Jesus say? Jesus turns Peter into an amateur fisherman. You see, Peter's going to go from the expert fisherman to be the amateur when Jesus says, from now on, you will be catching men. Now, we're going to come back to this point in a second, but I want you to go ahead and see in this. Who are disciples of Jesus? They're undeserving sinners. Jesus could, Peter, could be a follower and be used for the mission of God because his response was one of, hey man, I am not worthy. Hey, let's go to the next one. Going down to verse 12. We see the next truth here. It's it's the unclean leper. Verse 12 of chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now let me just pause for a second. What do you know about leprosy? Man, it says he was full of leprosy. Leprosy was a broad term that was used for a whole series of skin diseases. And, and man, it, 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 it was contagious. And so what that would have led them to do is if you had leprosy, you would have been ostracized. From all the people. Now, just imagine the psychological, the sociological effects of this. This unclean leper had been shunned by everyone. And he comes to Jesus, and this is what he says Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, what does Jesus do? It says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. No, Jesus, don't do that. Jesus, you touch him and you will be unclean. That's what the Pharisees are thinking. You know how Jesus shows his his compassion on this unclean leper? He could have just spoke his words, right? He could have spoke and he could have healed him. But it says he reached out his hand and he touched him. And what happened? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left them. And he charged them to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to him to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Here's the question that we're continuing to ask. Who is the potential object of God's mercy. Who is the potential object of God's mercy? We've seen a fisherman, and now we've seen an unclean, shunned leper. Let me just kind of jump into you for a second. How do you answer that question? Do you see yourself as an object of the mercy of God? And who do you relate with? Do you relate with a fisherman? Maybe even some of you today are saying, man, I'm more relate to the unclean leper. Man, nobody cares about me. Society has shunned me. They don't want anything to do with me. You know what the news that I'm challenging you to respond to today is this. Jesus has come for all, even the shunned. Man, that's good news today. We see an unclean leper. Jesus says, hey, he tells them not to tell anyone why. Well, the point is this. He did not want anyone to misunderstand his messianic identity. Now, we're going to see as we continue on in Luke, this is going to become more and more clear and more evident. But his time has not come yet because he knows when it becomes full-blown, he's going to the cross. And so the time has not come for the cross. He's still got a ministry of word and deeds and disciple gathering to do. And so he says, do not tell. So we've got an A fisherman, we've got an unclean leper, now let's go to the paralytic. Go to verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. First time in Luke that we hear about these Pharisees. So who were they? They were one of the four major sects of Judaism, along with the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, and they were the most influential. Their primary role was to keep the nation of Israel faithful to the Mosaic law. And so what we see is that they developed their own laws and rules to apply the law to almost every circumstance in life. We see the Pharisees, Jesus engaging with them throughout His ministry. Why? Because they looked very good on the outside. They did a lot of very religious things. But on the inside, they had hearts that were not honoring to God. You see the Pharisees here, and then it says, There was also the teachers of the law, the scribes. They were the ones, they were the religious lawyers that recorded the tradition for future generations. All right, that sets the scene. Here we go. So they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal. Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in. And lay him before Jesus. But they were finding difficulty, right? But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Back in the day, many of the homes had stairs that would lead on the outside up to the top of the roof. I think they said it was like six feet tall. Not very tall, right? Don't picture like a a two-story, you know, mansion that most of us live in. Um, So they would have gone on the roof. They would have had clay there. They would have pulled apart and put him down in the roof to bring him to Jesus. Notice what happens here um, in verse 20. It says, And when he saw their faith... It's interesting here that Jesus didn't just see the faith of the paralytic. He also saw the faith of the friends. The friends knew where the power was to change this guy's life along with the paralytic. So it says, When he saw their faith, he said, Man... Your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? You see, again, the, the deity of Jesus, Him knowing what's even going on inside of them. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the man who was paralyzed i say to you rise pick up your bed and go home and immediately he rose up before them picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying god and amazement seized them all seized them all and they glorified god and were filled with awe saying we have seen extraordinary things today let me just highlight something about faith i love what what Tim Keller says here about faith. He gives this quote. He says, It is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. Saving faith isn't a level of psychological certainty. It is an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. We give ourselves wholly to him because he gave himself wholly to us. So even as you reflect on today, Man, what are you going to do with this news? We see here the response of Peter. We see the response of the unclean leper. We see the paralytic is a response of faith. Well, then you should be posing this question. What does it look like to have faith? And so as we see with Kelly's, it's not psychological certainty. It is an act of the will that is putting faith in the object. Who is great? Jesus is great. My faith is weak. So I take my weak, my minimal faith, and I put it in a great God. Because the power is not in my faith to save me. The power is in Jesus to save me. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? It's interesting here as we read about this account, the Pharisees. There's the controversy Controversy here, right, man? Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And you know what? There's an element of truth there, right? The Pharisees got half of it right. Only God can forgive sins, right? Look, look at a few of these. Um, I love this. We, we read earlier in Psalm 103. Just reflect with me again. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That is good news. Man, if you're here today like, hey man, I'm a sinner, and, and why would Jesus have anything to do with me? I've blown it on multiple fronts. Do you hear this? God does not deal with you according to what your sins deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Guys, the reality is this, and this is why I was praying the Lord, we need help. Because to come to Jesus and to receive this news is to acknowledge that you are a sinner. What are we going to see about the Pharisees? You, we're going to see later on. You know what's the problem with the Pharisees? They don't acknowledge their sin. So, I mean, as you're sitting here today with this news, man, one of the first steps for you is to come to realization is you know what? I'm not perfect. And, and there are a couple different ways that you can kind of respond to the gospel, one of them is by religion. And this is kind of the Pharisees. It's, hey, you know what? The religion is is God will accept me if I do enough good things. So I'm going to keep coming to church. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. I'm going to start praying more. And if I do all these things, well, then God owes me. That's religion. And the outcome is destructive. On the other hand, another enemy of the gospel is irreligion, which basically says, I don't care what God says. I'll be my own authority. I'll make my own rules. And if God is not my authority, well, then I'm not a sinner. Because only sin comes into play when there is a ruler and an authority. Man, where are you? Are you the religious Pharisee that's creating and trying to do a bunch of good things? Or are you the irreligious person that's saying, man, I don't want anything to do with God. I'm going to create my own rules and I'm going to live how I want to live. At the end of the day... We both of those have to come to an acknowledgement that they are both sinners in need of a Savior. Only God forgives sins. The Pharisees are right. But what is unique about what Jesus is doing? Jesus isn't forgiving sins in the way that I forgive Tanner. Let me just explain this for a second. Tanner goes and talks behind me to my wife. And that's what happened. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You guys know Tanner's one of my best friends here. When Tanner sins against me, I can forgive Tanner. Why? Because he sinned against me. But is that what Jesus is doing? These men are coming and Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. Did they sin against Jesus? Who did they sin against? Their sin was against God. So the implication is, if Jesus can forgive their sins, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Do you get it? And so Jesus says, which is easier Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or to take up your bed and walk? Well, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Nobody can prove that. I can say, hey, your sins are forgiven. There's nothing to prove it. So he says, so that you'll know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately, he rises, and he goes home. You know, ironically here, though, is it easier to forgive sins or to... Tell the man to rise and walk. Or maybe I'll just ask another question. How is it that our sins can be forgiven? How can Jesus say, your sin's forgiven? How can Psalm 103, God say, I'm not going to pay? That's not right. That's not justice. How can a God just overlook sins and not, and not punish them? Look at this. Matthew says this. Jesus says, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ironically, it's harder to forgive sins. It costs Jesus his life. And so he's sitting here with a paralytic, and he's saying, your sins are forgiven. And he's saying, they're going to be forgiven because a couple years from now, I'm about to go down, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to pay for them. What do you do with this news? What are you doing with it? What about your sin? Because this Psalm 103, let me just share this with you. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, God's not just going to say, okay, man, you you weren't that bad. I'll just overlook your sins. The reality is is God is just, and he will punish every sin. He has to. This is who God is. And so the reality is, is you will pay the punishment for all of eternity, or you either come to Jesus like Peter, and you fall on yourself, and you say, Lord, have mercy on me. What are you going to do with this news, Man, it's good news, And what do we see? Man, when this man's healed, he he leaves and it says he glorified God. And I think there's a, a truth of an element to this is that when Jesus heals us and he changes us is that it produces joy. Now, what are we seeing here about the ministry of Jesus? Let me just pause for a second. We're seeing it is a ministry of the word. It is a ministry of healing but it has taken even greater significance on. His healings are a physical picture of much deeper spiritual realities. That what is ultimate is that Jesus will save your soul through the forgiveness of sins. I'll just pose this for you. I believe that there is no other religion that can offer a better explanation for the redemption of this world the way Jesus does. Did you catch that? No other religion can compare with the, the redemption that is found that Jesus offers. He is offering physical healing. And I'm just talking about... Man, if, man, here's an example. My wrist. Man, why do I have a cyst in my wrist that needs to be cut out? Man, I don't know. This is an example of living in a fallen world. But I do know know that one day when Jesus returns that I am going to be given a glorified body. Did you know that eternal life, you're actually going to have a body? It's not just in la-la land, your soul somewhere. You will have a physical body. When Jesus died on the cross, he was in the tomb, he raised, he went with Jesus, and he came back. Do you know what type of body he had? He's walking with his disciples and he's saying, hey, let's eat some fish. And they go and he eats fish. He's saying, Thomas, put your hands in in my hands. It was a physical body. And so the salvation Jesus brings is holistic, that he will redeem my whole body. He is going to redeem this whole earth. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. This Hurricane Sandy and the tragedy that we get throughout as we look at even creation, earthquakes, earthquakes tornadoes, Jesus is going to redeem. It's a holistic salvation. It's not just personal. So what I'm offering you today is is personal salvation. Yes, the forgiveness of sins, but it is also a Savior who is concerned about everything. Then we go to Levi. We're cruising. On sermon number four. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Do you know, what, you know anything about tax collectors? They were held in the lowest esteem. They were, man, he was probably even considered a traitor. By the way, Levi here is Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Again, somebody who was rejected, who was low esteemed, Jesus is calling him and saying, come follow me. Notice what happens next. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors, and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hey guys, did you get that? If you don't get any other verse today, get that. I'm going to read it again. So for some reason you just heard me say you need to get that and you woke up. All right, listen now, because I'm going to read it again. You need to get this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees are okay. He's not saying, okay, they're fine. I don't need to worry about them. I'll focus on sinners. What he's saying is they don't even realize they're sick. So what does he say after that? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. None of you are righteous. This is what you need to get today. Look, if you're here today and say, look, I'm fine. I'm not a sinner. You know, everything's going well. The reality is is you don't need Jesus. And this is what he's saying here. I didn't come to to call you because obviously you don't need me. What is implicit here is that all of his followers have to acknowledge this. You know what? I'm a sinner. And and followers of Jesus are those who acknowledge I am a sinner, I am not perfect, and they're coming to the great physician who can heal. What are you going to do with this news? Are you going to respond today and come to the great physician to find healing? Are you going to continue on your path of life pretending like nothing's wrong? Man, I'm good. No sin. I'm fine. Kind of wrapping up this first point in the first four or five sermons. No one is allowed to sit on the fence. This is what's happening here. Is Jesus a blasphemer? Or is he sent from God with authority to heal sins? You answer that question. Does Jesus have the one to forgive or is he a blasphemer? Is he the promised one of God? And let me ask you this. What's keeping you from following Jesus? Are you too religious? Are you too sinful? Are you not accepted? The reality of what we've seen in these examples is that Jesus has come for all. Everybody in this room can fit in. What is necessary is repentance and faith. Second truth I want us to see today is this, and I've got to pick up my pace. Disciples are undeserving sinners who make disciples. I'm going to go back to chapter 5, verse 11, real briefly. And we see this. When Simon Peter responds to Jesus, he says, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Look, Jesus doesn't flesh, out, flesh this out for them, but it's astonishing. This is the first disciple. And what does Jesus say? Hey, by the way, you're going to be catching men. So from the very beginning, he's framing their mindset of what does it mean to be a disciple? Disciples are about bringing others to the great physician. It is a rescuing. This this catching men, it's catching men, catching women. It is a rescuing act. It is a gathering act. This is what we're to be about. So this totally shatters. Look, there are not two levels of disciples. You know, like like an initial disciple, is like, yeah, I'll be a believer. And then those other great disciples who go and, you know, bring people to Jesus. No, there's one level of discipleship. You go and you make disciples. It's from the very beginning we get this. And, And also just from this conversation with Levi. Man, who was Jesus hanging out with? Jesus was hanging out with sinners. So how does this even impact our framework of disciples, underserving disciples who make disciples? It's this, we rescue all kinds of people. We see Jesus went and touched the unclean leper. He's healing the paralytic. He's hanging out with the tax collector and sinner, and so should you. Isolation from sinners is not the call of the disciple. If Jesus saw the same lost, how much more should we? And then we see the 12 apostles. Flip to chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. So the sandwich here. He's calling disciples at the beginning of the section, and then you've got the 12 apostles, disciples at the end. Chapter 6, verse 12. It says, "In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. So there were a lot of disciples, and from with the disciples he chose 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, and his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Do you know who these 12 apostles become? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. His disciples are the ones who changed the course of the church. And so the history of Acts is Peter preaching at Pentecost and thousands coming to faith in Christ, and they're baptized, and then they were going, and they're making disciples, making disciples, and you have the growth of the church. What is my point here that I want you to get? It is to be a disciple is to make disciples. I don't know what I can do to get you to get that, but that's it. There's no, to be a disciple, it's not just to come and be very, you know, It's all about me and and what I get for Jesus. No, it's about you and you go rescue others. And so real briefly, let me just, man, what is the evangelism or discipleship strategy of Redemption Hill Church? Man, it's really nifty. It's you. That's it. That's it. You are our evangelism, our discipleship strategy. The gospel changes people and people change the world. It's you. We call this evangelism networking. We basically say that every single one of you have a network. You have family. You have either a school or work network. You have a neighborhood network. And then you have friends that are not in those other networks. And that it's your responsibility to own that and to go after that. And, and I would just kind of lay it out this way. I'm going to just briefly hit these. This is our evangelism sh- discipleship strategy. First of all, it's this. Know the gospel drives our mission. Man, we don't do this out of, out of guilt. We don't do it out of fear. We are motivated by love. It is compassion that drives us. Secondly, identify people in your spheres of influence. Man, have you identified? Man, who are these people? Man, who are your friends? Who's in your family? Who's in your, who do you work with? Who do you go to school with? Have you you just taken a sheet of paper and said, okay, okay, what are my relational networks? Man, where do I I usually go and get gas and get food and eat at? And who are those people? And what I want to challenge you to do today is own it. Our evangelism mission strategy is if, if every single body in this room said, you know what, I've got a network and I'm going to own it. And I'm going to go and I'm going to fish. And I'm going to catch. And I'm going to rescue. And I'm going to gather. That's how we reach greater Boston and the ends of the earth. That's our missional strategy. You identify. The third thing you do is you pray intentionally. So you've identified and you start praying. I'm going to pray and I'm going to persistently pray for these people that are in my life. And I'm going to pray and that God will give me an opportunity. Number four, I'm going to display the gospel and community. I'm going to get brothers and sisters in Christ that know that I'm praying and they're going to encourage me and challenge me. And then fifth, I'm going to invite people into my life in the church. And it's not just a, hey, yeah, you should grab a connection and an invite card. Always have those on you. And say, hey, yeah, man, I'd love for you to come to Redemption Hill Church. But invite them into your life. Do dinner with you. Jesus is sitting down and having a meal with sinners. Have a meal with them. Practice hospitality. Invite them into your life. Number six, as you invite, you declare your story in these story. Hey, man, here's what God's done in my life. You know what? That's what we're doing tonight at our baptism service. It's going to be a bunch of people saying, just sharing, here's the story of what God's done in my life. You ought to come. And then seven. It's disciples, um, disciple new believers who make disciples. You go from knowing to discipling. This is this is everybody here. Everybody, this will be the goal that you are walking. Where are you at in this list? Do you need to identify today? Do you need to start just strategically praying for people? Jesus said he was up early praying before he calls disciples. It says he prayed all night. You see the, the role that prayer played in his life. Maybe for some of you, it's man, how do I make a disciple? You've heard of us talk about multiply, the multiply gathering in a couple weeks, Friday night, November the 9th. The whole purpose of that is to equip disciples who can make disciples. So block out four hours of your time and come spend with us so we can equip you. But this is what God's plan is for you. If you call to be a disciple, you claim to be a disciple, you should be about making disciples. And then let's conclude. Let's go on to flip back with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And the last truth is this. Undeserving sinners who submit to Jesus' lordship. Luke 5, verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and often prayers, and, do, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? He said, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in those days. The point is this. Do you fast at a wedding? No. Fasting is meant for mourning, repentance, confession of sin. A wedding is a time of celebration. The imagery here is that Jesus is the bridegroom. There's no need for fasting here. So again, this is pointing to who is Jesus? The presence of God. Jesus is the bridegroom. This is not a time for fasting. He says there will be a time, but it's not now. And he gives us two metaphors. Verse, um, verse 36, he's told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Okay. And then he says the second one. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the new skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says the old is good. What in the world is he doing here? Here's the reality is that Jesus is ushering in something new. He's not just patching up Judaism. You get that? He's not just bringing along Judaism and making a few tweaks here. He is the completion. He is the fulfillment. It is going to require new fasting and different kinds of Sabbaths as we're going to see here in a second. So I'll just, man, I I wish I had time on this sixth and seventh sermon for you today, Um, but I'm not going to be able to flesh this out, but I'll say this. What does our fasting look like now? Our fasting now is not the fasting of the old. Jesus has come. We have tasted. We fast now because we've tasted Jesus and we want more of Him. And so it is a longing, and I'll just point you to Acts 13. You want to see the role that prayer and fasting can take place? Acts 13, the whole church planting movement of Paul, and his first and second missionary journey, the gospel going to the ends of the earth was launched by the local church. You know what they did? They fasted and prayed. And they sent out Paul. Jesus is not just patching uh, Judaism. He is ushering in. He is Lord. And then finally, the Sabbath, Luke 6. On a Sabbath, when he was going through the green fields, his disciples plucked and ate some greens. ate some heads of grains, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread and the presents, which is not lawful for any of the preceding? And he gave it to those with him, and he said, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he basically says this, If you want to condemn me, you also condemn David. And the Scriptures don't condemn David. And so we get this picture. What does it mean, new wineskins? What does it mean, this new and old patch? It means Jesus is Lord, and He is supreme, and even He has the rule and authority to interpret the law because the law was about Him. And so we come to Jesus as our supreme authority and life. And then we conclude with 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fear and discussed with one another what they might do. To Jesus. Is it lawful to eat on the Sabbath? Jesus answers that. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was never meant to be a law that bound us up and restricted us from doing good. He's like, Yes, it is lawful to do good. And then for, for those of you that are asking, Okay, so how should Christians regard the Sabbath? I'll just say this He doesn't ask, answer that question. And if you want to know that answer, I'm actually writing a dissertation on the Sabbath. So you can come talk with me more it's not that I don't have a lot that I would love to share about the Sabbath it's that if I started talking we would not leave for another hour um, so I'll just say this Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath Sabbath was a picture of rest and ultimate rest is found in a relationship with Jesus hey Sandy's coming tomorrow the good news is being proclaimed how will you respond Heavenly Father Heavenly Father Thank you for this word today. Pray that you would give us grace now as we enter into a time of response and participating in the Lord's Supper that we would see that your blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray for those today and how they're responding to this news. Lord, I pray that many that have been contemplating Jesus would come today for the first time acknowledging that they're a sinner and receiving the forgiveness found in Christ. Lord, I pray for us that have become followers of Christ, that you would renew our vision of what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples in and, and this idea of catching men and rescuing, gathering people for the kingdom. God, there are many in greater Boston that need you. There are many among the nations, and you are sovereign. You draw the fish into the nets as we go and are faithful. So, God, we pray in, in this hard land that you would save, that you would raise up, and that our people, would go out and be faithful making disciples. God, would that be the culture of our church and being faithful to the call of discipleship. I pray in Christ's name, amen.